Well, good morning to you. It's great to be with you this morning um, for worship as we are in our um, Advent series titled God With Us. It is um, a very well-known saying and a part of the Christmas story that Jesus is Emmanuel, which is God with us. Uh, I'm going to tell you a couple of things at the outset of the sermon. One is I can't hear out of my right ear uh, because of a uh, long story has something to do with quail hunting, which was awesome. Um, and not because I w- was, was dumb and didn't wear ear protection. It was because I did wear ear protection. Uh, so if I'm way too loud and I'm just kind of obnoxious, I can't hear myself, so I'm sorry. Uh, but we'll roll with it. But that's a good segue into this psalm, Psalm 46. Um, th- this is, I memorized Psalm 46 on September the 12th, 2011. Um, the day after... September the 11th, uh, not, not 2011, 2001, September the 12th, 2001. And for almost 20 years, this has been my go-to Bible passage um, during difficult times, during stressful seasons, during personally painful times, during times when I feel alone, during times when I feel under attack, during times when I feel under stress. And I think that makes it a great Advent psalm, a great passage for Advent, where we are coming to the close of a year where in some ways we've all felt alone, Uh, in some ways we have all felt under attack, in some ways we've all felt like our lives have been thrown into certain um, semblance of just being out of control in some ways. And it does lead to a question, is anybody in control? Who is driving this plane? Who's got his or hand on the, on the wheel? Um, and this is a great reminder that the Lord is with us. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 46. I am going to read the entirety of the psalm. And this is what the psalm says. The um, Prescript of this psalm, which is probably original to any of the psalms that you read, says this. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. Um, So by the way, right then and there, we should know that this is a song, a psalm that has been sung and spoken and used by God's people um, for thousands of years in times of distress, and in times of of difficulty. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of Jacob, we thank you that you are with us. You are our fortress. You are our refuge and our strength. You are a very present help to us in trouble. Many of us, I know, struggle to believe that, struggle to feel that right now. I pray that you would meet us here, even in this time, and convince us that that is true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been thinking uh, recently, actually, uh, particularly this week as I was working on this psalm, I've been thinking about Martin Luther. And not just Martin Luther in general, because he's got a lot of different episodes in his life, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of highs and lows when it comes to Martin Luther. But I've been thinking particularly about one episode in his life. Martin Luther has come down through history as the singular figure who lit the spark of what has become known through history as the Protestant Reformation. But the truth is, is that Martin Luther did not set out to create schism in the church. He did not set out to create an entirely new branch of Christianity that was apart from Roman Catholicism. Martin Luther actually was a very faithful and a very diligent monk. He was an Augustinian monk in Germany And through his study of the book of Romans and his teaching through the book of Romans, he came to a realization that certain practices that were both accepted by and encouraged by the church in Europe at that time did not have biblical merit. So when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, he wasn't trying to start a revolution. He was actually trying to start a theological conversation. It was essentially like a tweet. Martin Luther was trying to tweet, you know, some thoughts about, um, you know, certain practices of the church. And like tweets, his 95 Theses took on a life that he probably didn't intend for them to take on when he did it. And he did start a revolution, and a few years after this, he was a fugitive from justice, accused of heresy and being hunted down by the authorities to be arrested and imprisoned, probably executed. So Martin Luther went into hiding. He went into hiding in a castle in a place called Wartburg, and there in that castle where he was alone, isolated, hunted down, a couple of things happened. One is that he continued work and made a ton of headway on translating the Bible into German, which was important for two reasons. One, it gave a lot more regular, normal people the opportunity to read the Bible. But second, if you read the history books, the linguistic books, Martin Luther's German translation of the Bible has come down as probably the singular most important thing that had to do with the creation of the modern German language. Uh, But the second thing while he was doing this, was that Martin Luther was under unceasing torment in his spirit and in his soul. In that castle in Wartburg, Martin Luther felt like he was consistently and constantly under the attack of the devil. 
It was driving fear in him and anxiety in him and despair and this deep and abiding sense that God had left him, that God had abandoned him. Day by day, night by night, Martin Luther wrestled in his soul alone. Now, why have I been thinking about Martin Luther alone wrestling with the devil in the castle at Wartburg? It's because many of us, I think, over this past year have spent at least a part of a season doing much of the same thing. We've spent a lot of time alone this year. If not completely alone, then at least physically separated from some of our friends or maybe some of our family members who live in other parts of the country where you can't get to. Some of you have probably worked in cubicles next to a person for like 10 or 15 years that you haven't actually laid eyes on in almost a year and you probably won't in certain offices in certain workplaces in Houston for at least the first quarter in 2021 if not longer and I bet you've had some time to think right there's probably been some soul searching going on I bet you've probably also gone through a dark night of the soul once or twice much like Martin Luther did maybe even to the extent of the devil himself trying to convince you that God has abandoned you, that God has left you, that God has fallen asleep at the wheel. Maybe you've experienced that sense of fear and dread and vulnerability and anxiety like you never have before in your life. Well, fear and vulnerability lie at the very heart of Psalm 46. It is likely that the historical occasion upon which the sons of Korah wrote Psalm 46 was that Israel was at war. And that war was not going particularly well. And the enemies of God's people had been surrounding and encamping and setting their eyes on the holy city of Jerusalem. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem felt vulnerable and they felt afraid. And fear always makes us, in some senses, if we're believers in, in Christ, fear does actually make us, in some senses, act irrationally. Because fear tempts us not to live by what we believe, not to live by what we confess to be true. Fear causes us sometimes to live as if there are forces in this world that are more powerful and more influential than God himself. And Psalm 46 is here to remind us that no matter what it is that we face, this is simply not true. God rules over all things. God is with us. He is with all of his people. So we do not fear. The question that I want us to ask this morning as we continue along our path of Advent is this. How is God with us? How do, we, how do we own that? How do we walk through the real difficult and lonely and stressful and struggling parts of our lives knowing that God is with us? Well, Psalm 46 tells us two ways that God is with us. First, he's with us in his person, and second, he is with us in his presence. God is with us in his person. God is with us in his presence. So God is with you first in his person. Now, there are a couple of ways, and I talked about this in a sermon several weeks ago. There are a couple of ways to think about the personhood of God. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, um, gets at this question by asking this question, what is God? And the confession answers this way, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now this is a true statement. It is a pretty amazing synthesis, actually, of a ton of biblical data. But my quibble with it is that I don't think that this is necessarily the way that God introduces himself to us in the Bible. What is God is not a question that the Bible spends a ton of time answering. The Bible spends a whole lot of time answering this question, who is God? Who is God? And there's a different story there. And that question can only be answered by thinking about it in two different parts. Who God is and what God does. And each of these are answered for us in some ways, not comprehensively, but in some ways in Psalm 46. So first, who is God? The psalmist answers this question for us in verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength. God is our refuge and our strength. God is our refuge. When I was in college, a junior year in college, I made the decision, for good or for ill, to live in my fraternity house. And I had a, I had a problem living in my fraternity house. I had a million problems living in my fraternity house, but one of them was this. I had a German class at 8 a.m. every Friday morning, and my German professor gave us a quiz. This was cruel and unusual. He gave us a quiz every Friday at 8 a.m. on Friday morning. Now, in college, uh, back in the day, I don't know if it's the same way now, Thursday night was kind of like the, the party night, right? And so I was having trouble getting my requisite eight hours of sleep on Thursday night, uh, so that I could take my German quiz on Friday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I devised a scheme. My scheme was that at some point when I realized that if I didn't go to sleep, I was going to fail my quiz, I would sneak downstairs from my room. And this is like 1990-ish, okay? So you got to use your... Some of y'all are going to really have to use your imaginations here. But what, what, what the setup was is somebody had a portable CD player and it was connected to these gigantic speakers and it was on like, you know, level 12 of, of level 10, you know, most of the night. So I'd go down there and I would steal the cable that connected the CD player to the speakers. And I would hide it and then I would go back up to my room. I would lock the door. I actually hid these cables, these speaker cables in my refrigerator the little mini refrigerator that was in my closet in my room. Then I would shut the door, and then I would lock my door, and then I would blissfully go to sleep. The next day, at some point during the day, the speaker cables magically reappeared, you know, by the speakers. And this happened basically every Thursday night for an entire semester. And my little room in that fraternity house, and my closet, and in fact, my little mini refrigerator became my refuge. It became my shelter from all of the chaos that surrounded me so that I could actually at some point get some rest. It's a defensive posture of God, an invitation that he invites you into his rest. He is your refuge against the chaos and the uncertainty and the difficulty of this world. 
As my children have gotten older, and we're, I guess, coming up on less than a year now of becoming empty nesters, I've thought more and more and more about this concept of refuge. To live as a teenager in Houston is hard. It's hard in a lot of places. Uh, It's probably not the hardest place in the world to live as a teenager, but it's harder than some. It's harder than the place that I grew up in, I can tell you that. Because the pressure in this place to succeed is intense and immense, and it is unrelenting. The pressure to be the best athlete, to make the team, to be in the right social group, to get into the right college, nearly everything that our culture tells our children from the moment they are born is this, to perform is to matter. To perform is to matter. And it can be crushing, I can tell you. It can be crushing. Now this isn't really new. I think that it has increased in intensity. You can find it in some of our oldest stories. Like the animated version, by the way, of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger, which I think, uh, Ranger, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, he did not join the military, you know, since, since last Christmas. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer made his television debut in 1964. I think I've been watching it every year since 1971. Here's one way to summarize the story. Rudolph is the pride and joy of his mother and father, Donner, his dad, but he is born with a physical deformity. His nose bright, you know, glows bright red. His mom and dad homeschool him for the first, you know, through elementary school, and they try to cover it up, right? Uh, they they kind of keep him away from all of the other reindeer and things like that, but by the time he hits middle school, he's got to go to school because he's got to learn how to be on Santa's team. And there, he is found out. His nose glows bright red, and all of the other reindeer laugh and call him names. And the most crushing part is even the adult reindeer, his teachers, laugh at him. Everybody. And Santa tells him, Rudolph, you're never going to make my team. Look at you. You're never going to amount to anything. And so what does Rudolph do? He runs away, right? He runs away because he's a misfit, and he finds another misfit, Hermie, the elf, who doesn't want to make toys. He wants to be a dentist. And along the way, Hermie and Rudolph are under attack by the abominable snowman. In fact, Rudolph almost dies. And they are rescued by some quick thinking and the help of Yukon Cornelius, to the point where they actually succeed in not only evading the abominable snowman, but capturing him and bringing him back to the North Pole. So here's the story. Rudolph and Hermie and Yukon Cornelius triumphantly return to the North Pole on a very foggy Christmas Eve. And not only have they, uh, they have captured the dangerous element in the North Pole, Santa Claus who had previously told him he could never make his team, said, hold on just a second, Rudolph. You can be useful to me. I can can use that nose. Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? So here's how I summarize that story. You're worth nothing unless you are useful to me. Now, that's a little bit cynical, I, I, I guess. But perform, right? Rescue us from the abominable snowman. Guide my sleigh through the fog. 
And then I'm not mad at you anymore. You'll get your reward, right? It's consistent, this performing you matter sense is consistent with everything that we grow up believing to be true. Particularly those who are young among us. What do they need? They need to understand that God does not operate that way. That God does not operate that way. That God is your refuge. God never, ever, ever. It is antithetical to everything that the Bible teaches for God to say, you are valuable to me in as much as you are useful to me. He never says, I will accept you if you perform. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you are valuable to me because you are created in my image. I sought you out. I bought you at the cost of my own blood. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God is our refuge. We do not have to perform to be embraced by him. He's also our strength. If refuge is primarily defensive, strength is primarily offensive. It is God's battle readiness. The God who stands ready and able to fight on your behalf, to defeat your enemies. He's strong and he's ready and able to use his strength to defeat evil in this world. So that's who God is. He's our refuge and our strength. Let's now look at what God does. And what God does is bring peace through judgment. Look at verses 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord. This is what he does. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What these verses tell us is despite appearances sometimes, despite what it may look like, God does not ignore evil, nor does he let his creation spin out of control. He doesn't turn a blind eye toward the works of those that are set against him and his purposes, those who exploit the poor, those who commit genocide to maintain power, those who traffic in human beings for profit. He does not do that, nor do we want him to do that. We do not have a powerless God who wrings his hands at evil and pain and wickedness uh, and even sickness and death. We have a God who breaks the bow and shatters the spear and rules over his creation. He is with us in his person, our refuge and our strength. And he's also with us in his presence. And here's where Psalm 46 becomes very personal. God does not serve as your refuge and your strength in a distant manner. You know, God is not emailing you, hey, it's going to be okay, you know. He, he's, he's not shouting through the wilderness, you know, that, that, he, that everything is going to be okay. He does not dwell in a far-off land. He doesn't bring peace through judgment with a remote control. He's not a God of the drone strike. God brings 
peace by drawing near. He draws near. Just look at the times in Psalm 46 where God is described as being close to you. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her, the holy city, the city of Jerusalem. His people, his church, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Verses 7 and 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I think for many of us, and I know this is true for me, is that when we start thinking about the the ramifications about the presence of God in our lives, it becomes a practical problem in some ways. Um, it, It becomes a way where we think, you know, that sounds really great. I would love to experience the depth of the presence of God in my life, but how do I do that? I can't see him, I can't feel him, I can't touch him. Where is he? And how is he with me? Well, Psalm 46 talks about two ways in particular. First, God's with us as a provider and God is with us as our Savior. The Lord is with you as your provider. My favorite part of Psalm 46 is the transition between verses 3 and 4. Because if Psalm 46 were set to music, verses 1 through 3 would be loud and there would be like brass and there would be timpani going boom, 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 boom. You know, you'd have this sense in this symphony of the psalm of the, the waves and the wind and the battering of everything, you know, battering against the fortresses and battering against the castles. But then, as you transition from verse 3 to verse 4, all of that would stop and you would probably get the soothing melody of like the single oboe that kind of cuts through that chaos and brings that sense of peace and presence. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This difference in tone happens because of God's presence in the midst of the storm. God is with you as your provider. He's also with you as your Savior. The presence of the Lord in the midst of his temple, the presence of the Lord as the one who fights on your behalf, is not just sentimentalization to help you cope. It's not just words that, 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 that allow you to feel better in the midst of crisis. It's real. And the reality of it and the way that we know that it is real is because it became objective and tangible in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is Emmanuel. Multiple times in Psalm 46, the author writes, the Lord is with us. And when Jesus is born, he is called Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is what we are looking toward, what we are longing for in the advent of weary uncertainty. Jesus is your strength because he fought sin and death on your behalf and won. He's your refuge because if you trust in his power, if you come to him, that is his invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give give you rest. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
in Jesus, it is absolutely and objectively and tangibly true. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, that memory of the castle at Wartburg never left Martin Luther. He thought about it a lot, I think, as a defining season in his life. In fact, the refuge that he took there, the spiritual struggles that he went through there, and the presence of God that he actually ultimately experienced there were seared in his mind and memory as he meditated on this psalm, Psalm 46. And so five or six years after this castle moment in his life, as he was meditating on Psalm 46, Martin Luther wrote a great hymn. A mighty fortress is our God. Some of which goes like this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, a defensive position is what bulwark means. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But then to close out this hymn, he says this, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. God's kingdom is forever. And in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the uncertainty of this life, he invites you to come to him, to take refuge in him, to be strengthened by him, to dwell in him all the days of your life and into his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our refuge and strength, that you are our very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. That we have much to fear in this life and in this world that still battles the effects of sin. We know that you have defeated it ultimately. You defeated it by sending your son, our Savior Jesus, who has succeeded where we have failed and who will bring us into your everlasting kingdom. Strengthen us, Lord Jesus, with that knowledge and help us to take refuge in you. We ask it in your name. Amen.